This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. As global tensions heat with political unrest in northern Africa and heightened concerns about the role globalization could and likely will play in money laundering schemes, what measures are banking institutions and governmental bodies taking to balance privacy with fraud mitigation and national security? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Zaid Sukin, a CAM-certified AML specialist for EastNets, a Dubai-based compliance and payment solutions provider that focuses on AML, international ACH, identity management, and mobile remittances, just to name a few. Zaid, in previous discussions that I've had with EastNets, we've talked quite a bit about initiatives in Europe to curve cross-border fraud. In the U.S., where payments up until recently have been more isolated, concerns surrounding cross-border fraud have been less striking. That, of course, is all changing. Can you give our audience a little background about the role international ACH is going to play in globalization, the globalization of payments, and some of the concerns the global industry faces where money laundering and fraud come into play. Thank you, Tracy. Well, I think the companies and businesses will ultimately make a judgment call as to what medium to use based on the price of transferring funds, while retail and the average Joe, if you will, will make a call based on accessibility, which AICH seems to provide. That being said, while I expect an increase for retail customers, it won't be the biggest. I think the real increase will be with the investment style transactions, such as overseas stock offering, FX, and the like. So I think we can expect to see an increase in transactional activity from high net worth clients as opposed to normal, you know, everyday retail groups. So from a compliance point of view, I think that the biggest impact will be on the sanction screening side of things. And from the AML side, it's going to be more on the complexity of what needs to be monitored and on the extra efforts of understanding your international clients such as other banks, individuals, or companies. And Zay, when it comes to some of that understanding between U.S. financial institutions and institutions mm-hmm. in Europe or other parts of the world, where are we in the level of understanding? I mean, have, are we working together pretty well from a compliance perspective, or is more work needed? I think so. I think, um, well, I think as far as the concerns that the global markets will face from a regulatory standpoint, it's mostly going to surround the BSA and Patriot Act. And I think the expected increase in cross-border transfers made by U.S. citizens immediately subjects the non-U.S. banks to fall under the BSA and Patriot Act as jurisdictions, which increases the risk for these foreign banks. But in most cases, I think you're going to find that proper measures have already been taken in place for you know larger corporates that have already been dealing with the U.S., but we can expect significant increases in the volume of these transactions and subsequently alerts and compliance resource requirements on an international scale. So the same will apply to U.S. banks. So from your point of view, there's going to be a need to beef up their resources for the expected increase in volume and traffic. Now, naturally, with the increased volume comes the need for smarter monitoring. I feel that U.S. and EU and worldwide regulators tend to work together fairly well. I mean, they're pretty good about keeping information and bank secrecy acts in place to prevent information from leaking to external parties unless there's a justifiable reason, sort of like a search warrant, if you will. But I feel the regulators in the U.S. and EU now are catching up with banks and compliance. Before, it was a case where banks had a lot more resources, so they were way ahead of regulators in compliance, and in some cases, they would almost teach regulators how to do proper compliance. I think now regulators have caught up and are no longer expecting that, you know, quote, 
full compliance regardless of what it takes attitude. It's now a more realistic point of view, and they're looking for not only effective but efficient monitoring. This will in turn bring about a need for more specialized watchlist filtering and fraud and transaction monitoring solutions, as well as a need for a more risk-based approach to monitoring institutions where a less advanced method was previously in place. And Zaid, what about when we talk about some of the political unrest that's taking place in, in certain parts of the world, most notably northern Africa? How do you see that impacting some of the compliance initiatives that financial institutions, whether they're operating in the U.S. or operating overseas, will have to comply with? Well, I guess I would have to, with regards to the recent issues that have been taking place, I'd have to divide my answer into two parts. The first referring to recently what I call shifted governments, such as Egypt and Tunisia, and the second referring to what I call shifting or turbulent governments, such as Libya. So for shifted governments, the domestic institutions need to be critical of outgoing monies and should consider their own country as a high-risk one, applying increased scrutiny to substitute for potentially lessened governmental controls. This is essential because now all regulatory eyes are on these countries. For shifting governments, though, it's a much greater paradox. Okay, so say, for example, you're a bank in Libya, and a local politically exposed person or member of the government wants to transfer money to a large weapons manufacturing country. Now, under the current government, this is perfectly acceptable behavior because it's a country purchasing weapons for its own protection and its own army. But on the other hand, there are direct moral implications related to this. And the main confusion here being that the UN and international regulatory community is yet to impose sanctions on these countries, particularly following the US sanctions on Libya, which happened, I believe, yesterday. So it becomes a question of which legislation trumps the other. Is it international or local government? I'd have to say the main concern here is with corrupt politicians siphoning taxpayer money out of the country, particularly to offshore tax havens where it would be difficult to track and freeze. You see, it's not illegal for banks to transfer money to or from PEPs that are not blacklisted. It just needs to be subjected to an increased scrutiny. And to be perfectly honest, I would just recommend that foreign institutions be extra wary of transferring funds to and fro these countries. And this applies to both domestic and foreign banks that are dealing with these countries. They need to apply enhanced due diligence practices and placing these countries on their, what I like to call, international gray lists until international agreement can be reached as to whether or not these countries are sanctioned, paying particular attention to politically exposed persons such as current and former politicians and, and this is more challenging, newly emerging politicians such as revolutionaries. Banks also need to enhance their audit trails to make sure that in the future if anybody comes and knocks on their door, they have sufficient proof and justification of their actions. But I think that cutting off these countries from the global economy can have potentially devastating long-term effects on an already shaken global and local economy. So it needs to be handled delicately. I mean, just take the case of Libya and the sanctions. They're going to significantly affect the price of gas in an already struggling global economy. And I'd like to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, Zay, just to kind of expand on this a little bit, talking about sure. European companies that might be impacted by sanctions in the U.S. So let's take a moment to discuss how sanctions in the U.S. are impacting some of these European companies. How familiar are European companies, would you say, Zaid, with the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control? OFAC administers and enforces economic and trade sanctions based on foreign policy and national security against targeted foreign countries and regimes, terrorists, international narcotics traffickers, activities related to the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and other threats. European mm -hmm. companies doing business in the U.S. are coming up against very specific compliance mandates. 
What are the leading compliance issues and what steps are European entities taking to comply with those? Well, I believe that most businesses are aware of OFAC, the details of which are only really understood by larger corporations that deal in significant volume and values with the U.S. I think it's very important for businesses that are dealing with the U.S. or any external country, really, to fully understand the laws as they pertain to their case. So for smaller companies without a large legal and compliance departments, I would, I'm confident that their banks would be happy to outline the requirements that they would be subjected to. You know, it's a shame for a company not to plan ahead and have a deal ruined by minor regulatory oversight. So education in this case is a critical success factor for business. The challenge faced by European companies and banks alike is with the different levels of sanctions. So, for example, Sudan, Syria, Cuba, Europe can deal with them as long as there is no U.S. dollars involved. Now, all European banks are aware of U.S. regulations. I mean, take HSBC, for example. It has a 500 million pound fine pending. That's the largest fine ever to be leveled or proposed to be leveled. Barclays, AVM, I mean, these guys have all received fines to do with payments tampering on sanctioned countries. Now, EU banks are spending a lot of money to comply, and this is especially true for the bigger banks that are, in many cases, spending more than the U.S. banks do due to their size and geographical coverage. There's many banks in the EU that are many times bigger than the U.S. banks, so their expenditures are greater. The trick is just with the fine print of these sanctions. I mean, just to give you an example, if an EU bank has a French company as a client and an Iranian citizen is a 10% shareholder of said company, it's illegal for the bank to send a U.S. dollar transaction on that company's behalf or a transaction where more than 20% of the original goods is American in origin. I mean, judging by the recent fines and penalties, I'd say the number one compliance issue is sanctions compliance and sufficient watchless monitoring. I think there is currently an increase in regulatory pressure for tighter counter-terrorist financing controls. I mean, it's almost as if these controls are cyclical, flavor-of-the-year kind of stuff. You know, post-9-11, anti-terrorism financing was at the forefront. Then it was AML, and now it seems to be switching back to ATF. I think more and more regulators are stretching their jurisdiction as far as they can, kind of in an effort to control ATF and money laundering. And you can see this, like in the very recent case against Lebanese Canadian Bank, which is now a blacklisted bank. I think the EU feels that it has a tight grasp on preventing money laundering within its borders and that they now need to ensure that the the enemy without, if you will, is still at large and keep them in check. And I think you'll find that European entities are now working diligently to ensure that external transfers are properly monitored and that efficient blacklist monitoring is taking place. And what about some of the privacy concerns and, and compliance concerns that come up when we talk about the U.S.'s Bank Secrecy Act? Are you seeing closer scrutiny with regulatory pressures and more penalties for noncompliance with the BSA where non-U.S. entities are concerned? Oh, of course, of course. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the Lebanese-Canadian Bank is a perfect example of the U.S.'s jurisdiction reaching far and wide because of the BSA and Patriot Act. I mean, another frankly shocking example is that of the Swiss banks, Swiss banks, sorry, revealing the American citizen information under threat of persecution, that was for tax evasion, not even for AML or for sanctions monitoring. The BSA and Patriot Act have significantly changed the banking environment as we know it, and they continue to surprise us all every day. If you want to look at it from a really technical point of view, if you read the fine print of something like the sanctions, if I were a U.S. citizen and I own a bar in London and I served a Cuban a national a mojito, technically, technically, with the very fine print, that's a breach of U.S. sanctions. So how do you balance that? I mean, how do you know how, do you know how far to stretch it or how far the umbrella could, could overshadow those types of transactions? 
I think regulators are, in my opinion, regulators are actually quite fair entities. You know, they lay out laws. They say, listen, just do your best to make sure that nothing, you know, fishy is going on. And regulators, you'll find, won't prosecute just any bank for any infringement. I think where you'll find the issues arise and the prosecutions arise is when there are significant gaps in monitoring. Because money launderers are always going to be one step ahead. Always. They are always ahead of the trend, and we're always sort of in their dust, catching up on what they're doing and learning from it. The thing is that regulators just want to be sure that you've closed as many of the gaps that you have and that any gaps that you might have are extremely small. So I think that's what they're going to be you know, chasing on people after. It's not that, yes, you let one person slip through the tiniest possible crack that you couldn't have thought of before. No, it's going to be that, well, you had a lot of cracks in place, and it's very easy for money launderers to launder money through your bank. Yeah, and that's a good point that you raised, Aid, and, I, and something that I did want to talk a little bit about. When we talk about watch lists or some of the scrutiny that banks are putting on different transactions to determine that they're picking up on money laundering, can centralizing data and monitoring transactions in real time, such as through real-time forensics, contribute to an effective anti-money laundering plan? I'm very glad you asked this question. I think centralizing data is an absolute must. And I think it's a shame that banks still don't realize the potential and the power of compliance KYC procedures. Compliance is always looked at as a cost center, but when you know your customers and how, you, how they behave, which are regulatory requirements, you can more effectively target your customers and shape your products around the actually known needs as opposed to what you assume your customer needs. I mean, for AML, that doesn't involve functions monitoring, and I'm separating the two AML and sanctions monitoring. Post-event monitoring is, re- is needed. So it's very rare for you to find a single transaction that you can point to and say, aha, this is money laundering. It's usually a string of transactions occurring over a longer period of time. So for real-time monitoring, it's an absolute must for international payments when it comes to sanctions monitoring, and it's very critical for fraud prevention, particularly when you note that some fraud cases can take over a month to detect, and usually when it's detected, banks scramble and stop all operations, let's focus on fraud case. So if you have real-time monitoring, you want to use it for your sanctions monitoring and to a large extent for your anti-fraud prevention. But for money laundering, it's not a case that it's real-time. You have to know right now that, aha, this is money laundering. So you have a little bit of leeway there. But definitely centralizing data is such a benefit. I'd also submit that centralizing your data and understanding your customers, their needs, and how they work will lead to better service, which would theoretically reduce customer complaints and reduce the risk for additional fines, such as the one, the most recent RBS fine, where they are being currently fined by the FSA for not properly handling customer complaints. You know, we've talked quite a bit this morning about international ACH transactions, and I'm wondering, Zaid, how have and will fluid political unrest, how will these issues that we're facing right now from a global perspective impact the way those types of international or IACH transactions are handled? I think I'd have to divide my answer into two parts on this one. I think the first is going to be with regards to the way that some financial institutions have already frozen some of their assets that they have for countries witnessing these uprisings. I mean, we already know that Mubarak's assets in the Swiss banks have been frozen. And I mean, especially Libya now, again, because of the explicit U.S. sanctions. Some banks may refuse to deal with these countries, period, just to kind of get off the hassle, if you will. And 
I wouldn't agree with that, but due to the nature of OFAC regulations and the BSA, banks simply just want to avoid dealing with these U.S. sanctioned countries to avoid the risk. But it's very important to ensure proper KYC and to know one's correspondence and the compliance procedures and ensuring that you're minimizing these risks. So if you just enact some extra due diligence and, like I said earlier, kind of put these countries on your gray list, when it comes to international ACS transactions, you're going to have more volume and you're just going to have to be more careful with how you deal with those particular countries. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that does answer the question. And we've talked a little bit about this earlier. I guess I'd like to ask a little bit about fraud detection when it comes to international ACH. I guess that would, again, just tie into centralizing the data. There wouldn't be anything special about the international ACH transactions. Fraud's a tricky beast. It's it's easy to plan ahead for, but it'll always catch you by surprise how some people commit fraud. I think that, as with any new accessible payment system, the risk for fraud is immediate and fraudsters will try to use these systems to trick people into revealing their personal information and willingly handing over their money. So it's critical for the global markets to grasp the methodology behind the international ACH and try to determine ahead of time how it can be used for fraudulent activity and how to best prevent these activities. The problem comes with finding the time and to be able to do this. On top of their existing caseloads and requirement handling tasks, that's the real challenge. But I think that education of staff members on these methods, customers especially, I mean, a simple brochure can go a really long way in this case. And speaking and educating the correspondents is going to be key to ensuring that the victims of fraudulent activity are kept to a minimum. That and real-time monitoring and sort of when you get a new product, it's a good idea to kind of keep an extra open eye on it and maintain enhanced due diligence until you're at a level where you're comfortable with it. I think the increasing regulations are really going to be a challenge, but more specifically, the implementation of these regulations is going to be the real challenge. I think there's a quick jump on the sales side of things, if you will, for new products to kind of try and remain competitive and provide a better service to the clients. So it's important for banks to resist this temptation and, and perform the proper due diligence and anti-fraud planning. And I think that's going to be the real challenge is kind of holding back for just a little bit longer to make sure we've done a proper job before we release a product. Yeah, and I'd like to expand on that just a little bit when we talk about making sure that we have everything in line to detect fraud and also to keep everyone in the loop. Language barriers when we talk about international transactions obviously play a role. Mm. And so does processing, especially when we talk about mobile transactions, some of those emerging technologies that you touched on, as well as IACH. What steps should be taken to address AML regulations, counterterrorism financing, and know your customer or KYC controls when transactions cross international borders across numerous and perhaps emerging channels like mobile? Well, it's it's really important for banks to, A, understand the regulations of the countries they're dealing with. That, I think, is critical. And, B, what's more important, I think, is knowing your correspondence in these countries. I mean, if your correspondent happens to use you as an intermediary even and send a transfer that happens to be, you know, a little on the dodgy side, you can effectively be fined for this and your bank could be closed down. So it's important to know your correspondence, to know the regulations that you're dealing with, to know the laws, the implications of those countries, and basically do your homework really well. Now, when it comes to language barriers, from a sanctions point of view, the most obvious case and one of the most critical and difficult things to manage is when it comes to sanctions and blacklist monitoring, and that's from the point of view of names that are in other languages and the amount of permutations and spelling on these names. Now, I live in Jordan, and Muhammad is the most common name here and in the world, actually. And the different permutations and spellings of this name alone are vast 
And the key is that find, you have to find an AML system, or rather a sanction system, that is sophisticated enough to account for said permutations. But I think what would help even more is for blacklist provided providers, such as governments, to include as many known permutations and AKAs, also known as, as possible to ensure that the blacklist checks for international financing and KYC controls are done effectively. So just to summarize that point, it's important to know the regulations of the countries you're dealing with, know your correspondence very well, and the best way to do this is people, the banks like to send out uh, AML questionnaires to their correspondence. Do you have an AML system? Do you do sanctions checking, etc.? And then, more importantly, also have the sophisticated system you need in place to account for something like misspelling of names or also known as varieties. And before we wrap up today, Zay, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience as it relates to international fraud or maybe some of the compliance issues that we've talked about today or maybe something that we haven't touched on that would be of interest to the audience? I'd just like to reiterate my note that, you know, just regulators are now catching up with banks and compliance knowledge and expertise. Like I said before, it's no longer a case of comply or die, if you will. It's now a case of you have to comply, but you have to do it in an effective and efficient way. If you come and tell me that you have a thousand staff members all manually reviewing your SWIFT messages or your wire messages or your AICH messages going across, you could still get fined. You have to do it in an efficient manner now. So staff training, intelligent and advanced monitoring systems, and efficient handling of alerts are all more essential now than they ever were. I'd like to thank you again for your time today, Zaid. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Zaid Sukin, an AML specialist at Eastnets. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kenny. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.BankInfoSecurity.com.